Father, it's a privilege also to dig into your word and to worship you uh, through it. I don't know that we always see the preaching as a time of worship, but we should. In fact, there's a sense in which it's the, the singing, what we typically think of as worship, is preparing us for this, uh, to hear from you through the scriptures and the worship that this is. And so help us to see it that way with anticipation of what you want to say to us as we continue to discuss wisdom and how wisdom calls out. This is really a time where wisdom is calling out to us and we want to answer. We don't want to be the foolish people that we'll read about or the scorners and mockers who, who reject that call. And so give us hearts and minds and ears that are receptive to what you want to say. Use me as your vessel. I have my notes, Lord. I believe I prayed over them, uh, labored over them throughout the week for this message. But if there's anything I shouldn't say, just restrain me. If there's anything I should say, that's not in my notes. And I pray that you would bring that forth and let your people hear from you during this time. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to turn your Bibles to Proverbs 1. That's where we'll be. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 33. The title of this morning's sermon is Wisdom Calls Out. Wisdom Calls Out. This sermon serves somewhat as a follow-up to last Sunday's sermon. Remember, last Sunday's sermon was in Job 28. And it was, where is wisdom? If you remember, we studied Job, and he was, um, couldn't find wisdom anywhere in the natural world, which could give the impression that wisdom is hard to find. But as we'll see in these verses, she is not hard to find. She does call out to us. The context for last week was Job had grown tired, or weary is probably a better word, of his friends' platitudes and cliches that they were offering in the name of wisdom. And so he, he just sort of boldly declares and says, Job 28, 12, where shall wisdom be found? Because he's, he's not finding it from his friends. Job 28, 20, but where then does wisdom come? We'll see this morning wisdom is not as hard to find as it might have looked in last uh, Sunday's sermon because it was being looked for only in the, in the natural realm. So look at me at verse 20. Proverbs 1, 20. Wisdom cries aloud, calls out in the streets, in the markets, she raises her voice at the head of the noisy streets. She cries out, and at the, cent- at the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. And so she's not hiding, and this brings us to lesson one. God makes wisdom available. God makes wisdom available. You probably notice the use of the pronouns, she and her, which personify wisdom, make wisdom look like this woman, and that's fitting because if you see wisdom uh, personified, then she appears to be someone that you would have a relationship with to be wise. And uh, I don't want you to think of wisdom separately from God. You should really see wisdom as the revealed mind of God. Let me say that one more time because I think that's very important. As we, as not just for this morning, so remember really anytime you read Proverbs and see Lady Wisdom throughout the book, do not see her separate from God the Father, but really see Lady Wisdom as the revelation of the mind of God. They share the same worldview. What wisdom says through all of Scripture, but particularly through the book of Proverbs, is exactly what God the Father would want to say to us. And then this wisdom is uh, personified in Proverbs, but then becomes a person in Jesus Christ. Wisdom, or the Word, took on flesh in Jesus Christ. And so to have Wisdom is to have a relationship with her, which is to, to know God and have a relationship with him, so it's very fitting. In the above verses, wisdom calls out. Just notice this. 
It says she's crying aloud to people passing by. She is raising her voice. For the second time, again, it says she cries out. It's very evident that she wants to be heard. Notice where she is, not in any place secret or hard to find. She is in the most public places. She's uh, where we live our daily lives. She's in the street. She is in the markets. She is at the head of the streets. She is at the entrance of the city gates. The places that are most populated by people or most frequented are the places that she goes. And all of this is just meant to communicate her desire to be heard or, or to be found, uh, to communicate her availability. But there is something that threatens our ability to hear wisdom, or you could say, or to find her. And it's in the words noisy streets, noisy streets. If you just notice that there, you can tell that she's threatened to be drowned out. And I think that this is very fitting. I mean, yes, she's calling out, I'm sure, very loudly, but there's definitely the potential to not hear her if her voice is drowned out. And so in this chapter, it's the noisy streets, but it should cause us to ask what it would be in our lives that would drown out the voice of wisdom, what it was that could distract us. We live, some people suspect, in the busiest country, working the most hours, the, the most number of things vying for our attention and threatening to distract us. It wouldn't be too much to say that we live in maybe the busiest time in, in world history with the most number of things that can consume our attention, uh, some of those things permissible and just not profitable. So you could say, well, there's nothing in Scripture that would say that I shouldn't do this or, or look at this or watch this. It could be possible, but it might not necessarily be profitable. Uh, if there is one threat, it is often drowning out wisdom the potential to pull us away from hearing her voice. And so what could some of those things be? Could be the endless number of movies that we could watch. It could be some amount of music, perhaps secular music. It could be unprofitable books that we could read. If we're pretty social or pretty active relationally, it could be some number of uh, unprofitable conversations that we have with people. Maybe they're not necessarily immoral, but perhaps they're just shallow could be unwise people that we have in our lives. And it's not to say, I mean, we're, you know, if we're to share Christ, that means you're going to be encountering unbelievers, even ungodly people to share the Lord with them. How deep do those conversations go with them? How frequently? Uh, And so the company we keep, all of these things to me are the noisy streets that just have a very strong potential to drown out wisdom in our lives. There's the times we just need to turn things off, whether it's a television, whether it's the radio, whether it's the phone, whether it's social media, whatever it is that we can hear from wisdom. She has a strong challenge for everyone. Go ahead and look at verse 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? And basically, how long will fools hate knowledge? When Scripture asks how long, which it asks twice in this verse, but really implies a third time, it's always giving the impression there's something bad happening and it's going to get worse. Let me say one more time. Whenever you see how long that question being asked, there's something bad happening and the implication is it's going to get worse if things don't change. And I'll just give you two examples. When Moses went to speak to Pharaoh in Exodus 10.3, Moses said, the Lord God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. And it was a bad situation that Pharaoh was in, enslaving the Hebrews and persecuting them. 
but it was going to get worse the longer that he failed to release them. Uh, the plagues were going to get worse until finally, I mean, he, you know, uh, Passover had to take place with the death of the firstborn. Proverbs 6, 9, how long will you lie there, O sluggard, when will you arise from your sleep? And so the idea is the longer the sluggard sleeps, I mean, it's bad. He shouldn't even be sleeping at this point. He should have gotten up, begun working. Uh, but it's going to get even worse for him the longer he sleeps. And so the idea in verse 22 is, I think it should be a pretty evident one. The longer people go without wisdom, the worse things become for them. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the longer you go without wisdom, the worse decisions you're going to make or the, the more bad decisions you're going to continue to make. It's as though wisdom says, how long are you going to reject me? How long are you going to keep hurting yourself? There's three groups in this verse, and I just want you to notice them. We should understand each of them. There's the simple ones at the beginning of the verse, and then there's also the scoffers, and then there's also the fools. And so to briefly address them, the simple ones, I, I can probably best explain with um, kind of a correlation. We've talked a few times about opposites, and there's another opposite that helps illustrate this. We've talked that the opposite of wisdom is foolishness, right? The opposite of, of knowledgeable is ignorant. Well, the opposite of simple is prudent. So just like you associate foolishness and wisdom, just like you associate um, knowledge and ignorance, you should associate simple or simple-minded or simple people being contrasted with, or the opposite would be prudence or prudent people. And so prudence is what's needed for the simple. That's not my opinion. Go ahead and look at verse 1, same chapter. You don't have to, might have to turn a page a little to the left, perhaps, but just look at Proverbs 1, 4. What do the simple need? It says it right there. Give prudence to the simple. Again, in chapter 8, verse 5, it says simple ones. Learn prudence. That's what they're told to gain. So if, they, if they're prudent, then they'll no longer be simple. And what does it mean to be prudent? It really means to know what to believe. Or you could also say to be prudent means to know what not to believe. And so if prudent means to know what to believe or know what not to believe, then what does it mean to be simple? It basically would mean you believe everything or you're naive or, or gullible. And that's not my opinion. Proverbs 14, 15, it says, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. So the simple are going to be gullible. They're going to be easily led astray. It's not that they have a mental deficiency or that, or that there's anything wrong with them in that respect, but there's an amount of naivety to them. And prudence would encourage them to, it says, give thoughts to their steps, which would mean to examine their decisions or the things that they were to consume. Maybe the simplest illustration, there's a sense in which everyone has started or been simple. Children or infants are really the picture of, of simpleness. They're the picture of naivety. They're the, uh, to be naive or to be gullible, it's to consume anything and everything. And children, I mean, they, we don't mean, even mean that metaphorically. If it's, how long is it going to be in a baby's hand before it's where? In their mouth. I mean, they literally, they consume everything physically, but there's something wrong if you remain simple as you get older, because then you're kind of consuming everything mentally, emotionally in that same respect. And so to be prudent is to examine and say, what should and shouldn't come into my life? What should I, should I believe and shouldn't I believe? What decisions should I make or not make? So that's what it is to be simple. Uh, if the simple respond to wisdom, then they can become wise. And that's why wisdom is calling out. They're kind of the most hopeful group here, the simple. 
But if they reject wisdom, then they're on their way to becoming one of the other two groups, scoffers or fools. And so let's talk about them. Scoffers are also in Scripture known as scorners or mockers. So if you see scorners, you see mockers, then those are also scoffers. And here's how you can think about the simple and the scoffers. If the simple have blank looks on their face, what do scoffers have on their face? A sneer. They're smug. They're going to have a smirk. They think that they know everything. Proverbs 21, 24, it says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, the haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. And so when wisdom reaches out to scoffers, scoffers scorn or mock wisdom because they think that they already know everything. The third group is fools. Notice this about fools, because it's probably the, the best way to understand them. It doesn't say that they scoff at wisdom or mock wisdom. It says they downright hate hate knowledge or hate wisdom. Briefly look at verse 29. It repeats it. It says, they hated knowledge. So, repeated twice. And if you wanted a simple definition of fools, fools are individuals who hate knowledge. And to understand this, we need to have an understanding of what it means to hate. The way the Bible uses the word hate is different than the way we typically think of the word hate. I was looking at dictionary.com, and I said hate means to dislike intensely or passionately, to feel extreme aversion for or extreme hostility toward or to detest. But in Scripture, hate often has to do with choice. It simply means that something is chosen over something else, and whatever is not chosen is said to be hated. And I suspect even when I define hate that way, there could be some verses that come to mind. What's kind of the most well-known where it kind of shocks you a little bit that there are people you're told to hate? What comes to mind? Yeah, Luke 14, 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We know this isn't as literal as it sounds, right? There are other places where we're told that if we don't care for our family members, then we're worse than unbelievers. And in my mind, I read that, and I kind of think, what's worse than an unbeliever? I don't even know you could be worse than, you know, isn't that as bad as you can get? But apparently you can be even worse than an unbeliever if you don't care for your family. And my suspicion regarding that verse is that even unbelievers care for their family members. If you, if you don't do that, you're showing a, a neglect or level of depravity that even unbelievers don't typically show. But the point is this. When Jesus said that, he didn't mean we're literally to hate our family members. He just meant that we are to choose him. Another example, in Malachi, I think it's chapter 3, and then Paul quotes it in Romans 9. He says, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. It doesn't mean literally that God hated Esau. He actually blessed Esau considerably. He is one of the more blessed men in the Old Testament, wealthy peoples, people groups came from him. And so when it says that God hated Esau, it simply means that God did not choose Esau, like we are to choose Jesus over choosing our family members. And so it's an issue of choice. Look in verse 29. It says, they hated knowledge, they did not choose the Lord. It just means that they, or they did not choose the fear of the Lord. Fools hate knowledge in that they don't choose it is the point, or you could say they choose not to apply it. And this brings us to lesson two. Fools don't apply knowledge. Lesson two, fools don't apply knowledge. Let's briefly define wisdom and knowledge. Or, I don't know if this was the case for you 
I became a Christian. I listened to sermons, and I didn't know the word enough at times to know if what I was hearing was true. Someone would say something, and then perhaps years later, I would read in Scripture or study something out even for a sermon and then learn that what this person had said was true or sometimes learn what this person had said was not true. And early in my Christian life, someone said, wisdom is the application of knowledge. And then I think I heard other people say it. And fortunately, that is a good definition. That was something that we should understand that way. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Wise people apply the knowledge they have. Wisdom is the ability to do what is morally and spiritually right, which means wisdom is moral. Now, if you remember when we first started, this makes wisdom different than knowledge. Wisdom is moral, but knowledge is what? Remember we talked about this? Amoral. The question with knowledge is how we use it. Do we use knowledge in moral or immoral ways? But wisdom itself is entirely moral. In other words, there, there is a potential downside to, to knowledge. Although knowledge is amoral, it can be used immorally, right? Knowledge can puff up or make us proud. We can use our, Paul described how knowledge could be used lovingly in 1 Corinthians 8 to facilitate unity, to build and strengthen or edify others. But he also described how knowledge can be used immorally to cause division or to, uh, you know, criticize or condemn or judge. That's one of the main points in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, that knowledge can be used immorally. Whereas wisdom is moral, positive, through and through. There's no downside to wisdom. Gaining wisdom is only beneficial. It can only help us. It cannot puff us up like wisdom can. Even in 1 Corinthians 8, it's interesting, the word wise or wisdom doesn't really occur But 1 Corinthians 8 is basically a chapter about wisdom because Paul is saying, take the knowledge you have and use it in a loving way that builds up others. Or in other words, he's saying, be wise. Use your knowledge in a loving or a moral way. Now, uh, fools, the reason I mention this, is fools are individuals who have knowledge, but they don't apply it. One of the themes in the book of Proverbs is that fools are what in their own eyes? Fools are what in their own eyes? And have you ever thought about why that is? It's because they have knowledge. That's why they're wise in their own eyes. But they don't apply that knowledge. They think they're wise because of the knowledge they have. Now, earlier I said the simple do not have a mental deficiency. Well, similarly, fools do not have a mental deficiency. And if you've never considered this before, you should, that fools can be very intelligent. Fools don't have a low IQ, or they don't have to have a low IQ. Fools are not necessarily poorly educated. There are some fools who are incredibly educated. If God says, the fool says in his heart there is no God, and you go to a a university and see a professor who has countless PhDs, he's highly educated, he's been afforded a brilliant mind, but if he says that God does not exist— then he has just shown himself to be a brilliant, highly educated what? <laughs> fool. And so we, we need to understand that the people can be fools and, and be in, incredibly sharp, articulate, uh, and still be incredibly foolish. And so the issue for a fool, to say this very clearly, the issue for a fool, or the problem for a fool, it's not a low IQ, it's not a lack of education. The problem for the fool is the lack of desire. They lack the desire to apply the knowledge that they have, and so they continue, the foolish person continually faces situations 
where they have the knowledge to do what is right, morally or spiritually, but choose wrong. You, you actually can't really be foolish without knowledge, because if you don't have knowledge, you're not foolish, you're just what? We've talked about this too. You're ignorant. That's what it means. You have super low accountability. Like a, a, chi- a baby who lacks knowledge, you wouldn't really say is doing something foolish. You would just say that that baby or that child is ignorant and doesn't have the knowledge to do what's right. But when people get older and inquire amount of knowledge and don't apply it, then that makes them foolish. So James 4, 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That is the world fools live in. To be a fool is to repeatedly know what to do and know the right thing to do and not do it. That understanding, look what wisdom says to fools in verse 23. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So wisdom says that fools or unwise people must repent. The words, if you, like you look at the beginning of the verse, it says, if you turn at my reproof means if you repent at my rebuke. Why is, why, and I think this is really important for us to understand. I think it's important for every time we come to God's word. Why is repentance required to grow in wisdom? Because every time wisdom calls out to us, she is exposing our, our, our sin or our foolishness. She's exposing areas of our lives that need to change or uh, weaknesses where we can grow. And it requires having the humility to acknowledge that. And that's why when wisdom calls out, one of the first things she requires is repentance. If we're going to grow in wisdom, we must repent of the foolishness or sin that she exposes. And that's how it happens. You read scripture, you're confronted with this area of your life or this sin or this struggle. And if we repent, which is to say, if we turn at wisdom's reproof, then we can grow. But if what? But if we refuse because we're being foolish or we scoff because we're being mockers, then we're not going to grow in wisdom. But look, and this is what's sad about it, is look how, I guess I would say, willing wisdom is to help us grow. She says, I will pour out my spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, and make my words or my wisdom known to you. Why is the Holy Spirit mentioned there? Why is the Holy Spirit mentioned there? Because anytime, if, anytime you're going to grow in wisdom, the Holy Spirit had to have enlightened your heart, your mind. I don't know how many times I've shared this, probably not as many as I should. It makes it worthy of a reminder. As your pastor, if I can just encourage you, anytime you come to God's Word, whether during your daily devotional time or whatever the case is, before you look at one single verse on the page of the Bible, make a small prayer at the least that the Holy Spirit opens your heart and mind to understand and learn what you're reading. It doesn't have to be the longest prayer. It doesn't have to be accompanied by fasting. But because the Holy Spirit is our teacher, I would encourage you, anytime you're looking at the pages of Scripture, begin with that prayer that he is going to illuminate the truth to you, uh, resulting in an understanding of wisdom. In last Sunday's sermon, and I mean, it's one of the main points, it's, a, it's beautifully illustrated in Job 28, that wisdom is not natural, which is why Job could not find it where? In the 
natural world. That's really the point. If you remember last week's chapter, Job's going everywhere. He's going under the earth. He's going into caves and tunnels. Man goes to all these places looking for treasure and wealth. He goes into the sky. Birds fly overhead. He even goes to the land of the dead. And he can't find wisdom anywhere in the, in the world, in the natural world. Why is that? Because wisdom is supernatural. It is something that is supernaturally or spiritually discerned or understood. It's not something that we can try hard enough in our own effort. Like knowledge, you know, you can work hard enough. You can study hard enough, read enough books. You can go to college long enough and acquire massive amounts of knowledge and never acquire any wisdom because it's supernatural. We're going to look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2. That's kind of the premier chapter dealing with this topic at a later time. Don't turn there yet. But for now, just consider this one verse. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And to say they're spiritually discerned is to say that they're supernaturally learned. And this is why, so to connect the dots, you're very patient listening to that long discussion. I just want you to understand why in verse 23, the Spirit is mentioned. There is no wisdom gained, There is no truth discerned except that the Holy Spirit has first been poured out on that heart or mind to open the the ears and and the eyes of it. Ephesians 1.17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There's this one time real early in my Christian life, this I was invited, I think, because this gentleman knew that my brother died of, this, of a d- drug overdose. And he had been frequenting this 12-step program to go and share with these individuals. And so I think the gentleman didn't know how long I'd been a Christian, or really how short I'd been a Christian would be a better way to say it. Only probably a couple months at this point. And it's because I'd spent my life in the Catholic Church, I knew basically nothing about the Bible. I was beginning to read it, but I was in no place to put together any sort of um, sermon or Bible study. But I was reading through the Bible. I was reading Genesis and Matthew, then Exodus and Mark like this. And then Ellen comes to me and he says, have you read uh, Samuel or have you read about David? And I said, I said, no, I haven't read David, you know, and, and I'm not joking. I thought David would be in the book of David, you know. So I'm looking for the book of David, can't find it. He says, no, you got to read Sam, Samuel. I'm so, okay, so I'll start reading through Samuel. I get to 1 Samuel 10, and I hope I'll never forget, the prophet Samuel spoke to Saul, and it says that Saul turned away from Samuel, and God changed his heart on the spot. And I remember reading that, and I thought, this is an unbelievably profound verse to read, that God changed this man's heart on the spot, and all after hearing from Samuel and turning from him, what God can do in a person's life. And I thought, I don't ever want to forget this. And then, you know, a few days later, I don't know, maybe a week or something later, I get invited to this 12-step program. And so I'm speaking to these, this group. And again, I, knew, I hardly knew anything about the Bible, but I, I said I would go. I did the best I could. And so I showed them those verses in 1 Samuel 10. I hardly knew anything else, but I thought I probably will not go too far astray if I just simply read the verses and tell them what the Bible says, then I, I don't think I'll cause too many problems. And so I went and I spoke to these gentlemen at this, at this program, and these were individuals you look at. I mean, I look out here, and for the most part, you know, 
uh, you see wholesome, healthy families and individuals. This group was the opposite of that. These are people whose lives have been destroyed by drugs and alcohol. These are individuals who have moved from addiction to addiction to addiction. They look 20 or 30 years older than they actually are. You can tell that sin has taken its toll. So I'm speaking to these people who are still struggling with addictions, and I said, I just want you to see what God did here in Saul's life, that God changed Saul's spot, his heart on the spot, and he can do the same thing in your life. The same God who changed Saul's heart, you know, thousands of years ago can change, can change your heart. And it was a pretty short Bible study about that's how long it was. And I'm glad it wasn't much more because I might have said some things I shouldn't have said. So then afterwards, so I'm telling you all that, I'm afterwards this gentleman, I see him, he's walking up to me, and he had, he, he just looked like he was about 90. I'm guessing he was probably in his 30s. And I thought, and I'm ashamed that I thought this, I thought, well, here goes, he's going to lecture me or preach to me, probably this proud man that wants to add to my little message and tell me what I should have said or shouldn't have said. And I, ju- I just judged him. I judged him off the way that he looked. I judged him off the decisions that he had made um, in his life up to that point. And when he came up to me, one of the things I remember seeing was in his hand, he had this Bible, and it was duct taped. He had put duct tape around it because he had read it so much, and it was falling apart. And as this gentleman started to talk to me, now I don't, I'm not as, I don't, I'd be surprised if he graduated from high school. You know, so we're not talking about much education for him. And I'm not sure where he would have registered on any IQ tests that he took. But when that man spoke to me, there was wisdom. He should have been the person standing up front talking to this group. He was humble, and it was like, maybe it was because it was early in my Christian life, and I hadn't really seen wise people much before because I'd spent most of my life with fools. But when this man talked, I thought, this is wisdom this is profound. I want what he has. I would like to be more like him. I would like to know and understand God and his word like this man does. And I, was, I just remember thinking at that moment, wisdom is independent of intelligence. Wisdom is independent of education. People can have no education. They can register lowly on IQ tests, and they can be very, very wise. Just as, just as foolish as the person with multiple PhDs can be, Conversely, the person with a low IQ can still be very wise when God has supernaturally opened their hearts and minds to the truth. And that man was just a tremendous, you know, example to me. I never saw him again after that, but that, that encounter that God allowed me to have really spoke to me about how wise people can be uh, independent of any education or training that they have ever received, just people that want to open themselves up to the Lord and hear from him. And that's what's going on in these verses. Wisdom calls out, and this man had listened and responded to wisdom multiple times. But if we don't, if we reject wisdom, look what she says in the next verse, verse 24. She says, because I have called, because you have refused to listen, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. So this is wisdom repeatedly reaching out. Notice she has called, she has stretched out her hand. What is that? What is this picturing? It's picturing the multiple opportunities that people have throughout their lives to hear from wisdom or to hear her calling out to them. She says, you know, I have, I have cried out, I've stretched out my hand, but they have repeatedly rejected the offer. It says they refuse to listen 
Not they couldn't listen. They have not heeded. They have ignored her counsel. Says they would have none of her reproof. Just, just a revelation of the stubbornness of man's heart, the hard-heartedness, the blindness, spiritually speaking. And so as a result, look what wisdom says in verse 26. She says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Now, before we read those verses, how has wisdom pretty much looked? What words would you use to describe wisdom prior to those verses? Gracious, kind, inviting, even loving. And now how does she look in these verses? Severe, terrible, not someone to to trifle with or reject. And this brings us to lesson three. If people reject wisdom, part one, judgment is severe. If people reject wisdom, part one, judgment is severe. So what you see in this verse is, well, notice it says, I also. It says, I also, because wisdom is saying, I am also going to do to you what you have done to me. So people laugh to her, and what does she do? She laughs at them. People mocked her, so she mocks them. People scorned her, so she scorns them. Then this is far from the only place in Scripture where we see God respond this way. Remember, wisdom is a revelation of the mind of God, and to see the way that wisdom speaks or acts is to see the way that God speaks or acts. Until, until wisdom became, came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and, and walked among us, then we literally, when, to see Jesus on the face of the earth was to see wisdom walking, acting, talking, living. Now, because wisdom acts this way here, we can see other places in the Scripture where God himself acts this way. Psalm 2, for example. Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against God, all these people that turn against him, and against his anointed, against the Christ. And then listen how God responds. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Very similar language here to wisdom in Proverbs 1. Notice the strong, horrifying language in the verse. Just kind of go through it here quickly. It says, calamity, terror will strike you. And then again, verse 27, terror strikes you again. There's a storm coming against you. Calamity is coming like a whirlwind. There's going to be distress. There's going to be anguish. Now, I read these. If, I, if, I, if you only had these two verses, you would have to be a terribly foolish person to read these verses and feel comfortable rejecting wisdom. Let me say that one more time. It would only be the most foolish person who could read these verses, see how terrifying they are, the judgment or disaster coming upon individuals who reject wisdom, and still choose to do so. So I read these verses. I mean, I studied them all week. I stand here and I read them to you. And again, they challenge me or convict me to want to make sure that when I hear from the Lord or the conviction, when he speaks to me through his word or the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that I respond well to that and that I don't mock it or I don't scoff at it or scorn it because I don't want this, I don't want to experience this. You could even be troubled because of how wisdom sounds here. She, she, we can be honest. I mean, she sounds perhaps cruel. She sounds terrifying. She, she sounds, um, you know, very harsh. I would submit to you, she's being very loving because she is trying to produce what in a person's heart? Fear of God, repentance, very loving things. Think of parents. 
Parents can speak to children in such a way at times that the parent sounds very cruel when the parent's actually being very loving. When the parent is warning a child about a behavior or course of action, you could look and say, wow, the, the parent sounds so harsh or severe, when in reality the parent is trying to save or protect or benefit. Similarly, people can sound very loving and be very cruel or even evil. For example, my kids are feeling super comfortable this morning, kind of running. <laughs> that's the second one. I'm losing kids from my normal side over here to their grandparents, but I guess that's okay. What were we talking about anyway? Okay, so here, here's what I mean. Picture a woman who doesn't want to have a child, and her friend comes to her and says, you don't have to have that child. You can have an abortion. It'll be the best for you. It'll even be the best for the child. That sounds very loving, doesn't it? Sounds, I'm not saying it is. What it actually is is terribly evil and cruel. So it's not the way something sounds that determines whether it is loving or unloving or cruel or harsh. It's whether there's truth in it and there's truth in this. And that's what makes this loving. Regardless of how it might sound on the surface to us, wisdom is being very loving here as she tries to produce repentance in individuals. But if people won't repent, if they won't fear, look at verse 28. Then they will call upon me wisdom says, and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. This is more of wisdom doing to people what people have done to her. In other words, they wouldn't listen to wisdom, and now wisdom says what? I will not listen to you. You will call to me, and I will not answer, just like I called to you, and you did not answer. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. If people reject wisdom, she rejects them. If people reject wisdom, she rejects them. The, to, uh, to appreciate, if you were to look in this, at this verse in isolation, you would, you, would have so, you would see it so wrongly. The context for this verse is so important. You have people calling out for wisdom, but the timing of it, what's taking place in their life, is so crucial to interpreting this correctly. And here's why. They are calling out for wisdom in verse 28, but because of what they experienced in verses 26 and 27. Does that make sense? They're calling out for wisdom in verse 28, but because of the calamity, suffering, disaster, terror, storm, whirlwind, anguish, and distress that they experienced in verse 26 and 27. Or to make it real simple, they're calling out to wisdom because they're what? Suffering. They're calling out to wisdom because they're hurting. And they're suffering or they're hurting because they previously rejected wisdom. They have brought this judgment on themselves. Now they must experience the consequences of it. What you're seeing here, this is a very profound verse, very fitting, very applicable to all of our lives. What does this look like? It looks like people sinning. Or let me back up. It looks like people rejecting wisdom or rejecting counsel that they receive being foolish or sinning, suffering the consequences of their choices or their sin, and then doing what? Calling out for help, asking for wisdom, asking for deliverance. There's a world of difference between calling out to wisdom before you sin versus after you sin just because you're experiencing the consequences of your sin. And that's what these people are doing here. And wisdom is not answering then. And I just want you to to see this. I want you to appreciate 
how sobering this is that you can call out for wisdom and it can be too late for you. You can call out for wisdom and if you have rejected her some number of times previously, then she is not going to respond. Some years ago, I believe it was during an evening service, I, I almost think Leah was the one who said it, but I could be wrong to give credit where credit's due. We were having a discussion about the consequences of sin, and I thought she said something very close to, Scripture gives us wisdom to avoid getting ourselves into messes, but it doesn't give us the wisdom to get ourselves out of the messes once we've got ourselves into them. Does that make sense? (laughs) I think it's a very, 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 very important thing to understand. God's Word can keep you out of messes, but you're not going to find a whole bunch of verses about getting out of the messes once you've gotten yourself into them. And I don't know that I've had a tremendous amount of experience with this, but I'll give you one example that has happened more times than I can count. I think it's happened at every single marriage conference. I do not think I've put on a marriage conference where this has not happened, or it's happened to my wife, or probably happened to both of us. And it looks like this. Let's say I preached a message on men being spiritual leaders, praying with their families or reading the word with their families. And there's some woman who's sitting there. Maybe she's at the conference without her husband because he's an unspiritual man or perhaps he's an unbeliever. So she listens to this and she craves having a man that will do or be like I just described or basically God's word says he should be. So then she comes up to me after this message and she says, tells me her situation. You know, I'm married to this guy. He won't pray and read the word with me. And I don't mean to sound insensitive. It seems as though she thinks in this five-minute conversation, I'm going to be able to resolve this for her and tell her what she should do. When the problem is this, she was considering marrying a man. She had people that warned her that he was either an unbeliever or an unspiritual man. She married him anyway. And then she comes to me in a marriage conference and says, what can I do now that I'm married to a man who won't read the Bible? What can I say? There's almost, I can say, pray for him, 1 Peter 3, 1, be Christ to him, that he would be saved or that he would see Christ through you. But there's no guarantee that that will happen. I can tell her God's, the very hard truth that God still expects you to be a faithful, godly wife to this unspiritual, unchrist-like man but I can't fix the situation for her. That's a, that's a mess that she stepped into when she married an unbeliever. And that, so hope has destroyed so many marriages. And here's what I mean by that. The number of people who have gotten married saying these words, I hoped he would change. I hoped she would change. I cannot tell you the problems that have been caused from it. Now, hope doesn't disappoint, right? (laughs) You say, well, hope doesn't disappoint. That's what the Bible says. It depends what your hope is in. If your hope is in Christ, then no, hope doesn't disappoint. But if your hope is in your husband, your unbelieving husband changing or becoming a spiritual man someday, suddenly, just because you walked down the aisle and married him, then there's a lot of disappointment associated with that. And I'd share that if even just one young woman in here could hear that before marrying an unspiritual man. It would have been worth the whole dialogue just to see her not have to experience what so many young ladies have experienced. But the main point is this. Wisdom is calling out. Wisdom wants to help you and benefit you. But if you reject wisdom and you go forward and make decisions and you suffer and then you call out for wisdom's help, it's too late then. You cannot expect her to answer. 
And that's not my opinion. That's exactly what it says. Look in verse 28. They will call upon me after their suffering, as verses 26 and 27 say, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently at this point, but they will not find me. Look at verse 29. And this is why they hated knowledge. They didn't choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and they despised all of my reproof or they despised all of my rebukes. And so one of the themes in the last few sermons is that the fear of the Lord is associated with what? We're hoping we're, the fear of the Lord is associated with what? With wisdom, right? Wisdom is the fear. Job even said wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Job 28, 28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Now, since the fear of the Lord is wisdom, when people reject wisdom, what are they really rejecting? They're rejecting fearing the Lord, or you could say they're rejecting the Lord himself, and that's why rejecting wisdom is so serious. It's not, it's not so much an issue of, well, you're just not going to be as wise when you reject wisdom. I mean, that's true, but the real big issue is when you reject wisdom and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then you have rejected the Lord himself, which is why these verses are so strong. Look at the way these people are punished as a result. Verse 31, therefore, I just want you to notice this. I think it's very important. It says, they shall eat the fruit of their way and they shall have their fill of their own devices. This is one of the many places in Scripture revealing one of the strongest ways people are judged. Let me say this very clearly. You are looking at one of the verses in Scripture that reveals one of the strongest ways people are judged. God simply turns them over to their sin. He abandons them to their sin. He takes his hands off them and allows them to have their fill of their own devices or to eat the fruit of their own way. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. If people reject wisdom, part three, she turns them over to their sin. What's the very worst thing God can do to someone? We're all going to say, send them to hell. But in this life, that's what... That's the very worst thing that can happen to a person, but that happens in the next life. What is the very worst thing that can happen to someone in this life? You're looking at it. God abandons them to their sin and the consequences of it. It's reprobation. They have become reprobates, and God is no longer wisdom, or the Holy Spirit is no longer drawing them, working on them. They have been turned over to their sin and the consequences of it. Notice the language that's used eat the fruit of their way, have their fill. When God really wants to punish sinners because they've rejected wisdom for so long, he lets them reap what they've sown or he lets them eat what they want. That is their punishment. Consider this verse. The southern kingdom of Judah during Jeremiah's day, a spiritually dark time, heading into the Babylonian exile and the destruction of the temple because of how the people are behaving. And we're not talking about pagans here. We're not talking about Jonah and Nineveh. We're not talking about Obadiah going to the Edomites. We're talking about Jeremiah speaking to the Jews. And listen to what God said to them. I think this is a very profound verse. Jeremiah 2.19, your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. One more time. Your evil is going to chastise you or discipline you, and your apostasy or turning from me is going to reprove you or rebuke you. God is saying, I don't even have to discipline you. I don't even have to do anything to you. The consequences of your sin are going to be punishment enough. You can see people sin, and they can suffer terribly, and you could say, 
man, God's hand is very heavy on them. He's really given it to them. Maybe, or maybe he just let them have what they wanted. Maybe they're not suffering anything more than what they craved and the consequences of it. There's no, how do you know that God's fingerprints are on that situation? They're the ones who destroyed their lives and God had just withheld his grace or restraint from the behavior that they were engaging in. Think about the accounts in Scripture of God punishing people by giving them what they wanted. Balaam, how did God let Balaam suffer? He let him go with Balak. God let Balaam have what Balak wanted. God let Balaam have what Balaam wanted. He kept insisting that he would go, and God finally says, you can go. The two and a half tribes, I think it's pretty evident that God wanted the 12 tribes to settle in the promised land. They come up to the border of the promised land, and two and a half tribes want to settle on the east side of the Jordan. And shockingly, God allowed them to, and they suffered. They were further from the religious life of the nation because that, at that time it was so centered on the ark. They were, they were separated. They were the first tribes that were conquered. There was a conflict within the nation that almost divided it at that time. If wisdom is justified by our children, the wisdom of those two and a half tribes settling on the east side of the the Jordan declared that it wasn't really wisdom at all, or the children or what was produced from that decision was shown to be very problematic. How did God punish the nation of Israel when they called out for an earthly king? By giving them a king. (laughs) I mean, that's what he did. He even told them ahead of time. He said, you want an earthly king? You want, and and so Samuel says, they've rejected me. And God says in one of the worst verses to have to read in the entire Old Testament, God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. And then God says, if you want an earthly king, this is what he's going to do to you. This is what he's going to be like. And the people said, well, we still want an earthly king to be like the other nations, to go before us in battle. And then how did God punish them? He let them have that. And that is one of the severest ways that God punishes people. It can be terribly devastating. He just lets them give themselves over to whatever it is they're craving. And that's what's in view in this verse when it says, they shall eat the fruit of their way. They shall have the fill of their own devices. I will just let them have what they want to their own detriment. It's remarkably similar to Romans 1. You don't have to turn there because I want to read through these verses very quickly. Listen to this. Let this kind of wash over you. Romans 119, Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to them. When it says what can be known about God, that means they have knowledge. These are people like in Proverbs 1. They've been given knowledge of God because it's plain to them. I was going over the sermon with Katie, and she said, when it says that the knowledge is plain, it's almost like wisdom standing out in the street. She's not hiding. She's yelling to them. She's making herself plain. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, just like in Proverbs, they think they're wise, but they're fools. Romans 1.24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So just like in Proverbs, God turns them over to their sin. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, or they exchanged or rejected wisdom for foolishness. And here it is, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So in other words, God punished them by allowing them to be turned over to this sin that they wanted to engage in, and there was enough consequences from that sin that it devastates their lives. And that's 
All that God has to do is just let people be their immoral, depraved selves and destroy themselves with their decisions. After hearing these verses in Romans, let me share one, Proverbs one thirty one again, through that lens, it says, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way. They shall have the fill of their own devices. And that, to me, it just sounds like what God does in Romans 1 with people, being prefigured or foreshadowed here. Look at verse 32. For the simple are killed by their turning away. The complacency of fools destroys them. The simple end up being killed because they're too simple to make it without wisdom. I mean, how long is it, if a child grew up and remained simple, how long is a child going to make it on their own? without wisdom. They're not going to make it, and that's what it says. The simple don't make it. Fools end up being destroyed, interestingly, because of their indifference. It says they're complacent. They just don't care. That ends up catching up with them. They all rejected wisdom without having any idea how it was going to go for them. So the thing is, obeying God or embracing wisdom, it really keeps us from great suffering in the future. Now, I know this has been uh, challenging up to this point, perhaps not a tremendous amount of encouraging verses. There will be more when we dig into chapter 2. But the chapter does end with this wonderful promise for us, a great encouragement. Look in verse 33, our last verse for this morning. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. And the verse starts with the word but because there's a change here. We've been going down the path of foolishness and what that looks like. It's been described for us. And now the path of wisdom is revealed. We've been discussing death, that path, and now we get to see life. These verses are like this roadmap, wisdom, or, well, foolishness leading to death and destruction, and now wisdom that leads to peace and security, and everyone's on one of these two paths. This brings us to lesson four. If people embrace wisdom, she gives them security and peace. All of us are on that path of foolishness or wisdom, and if we embrace wisdom, she gives us security and peace. Wisdom offers life, she offers blessing, security, peace for all who receive her. This past week, I read an interesting quote that I wanted to share and invite you to keep the truth of it in mind throughout any of our sermons on wisdom. And the quote is this, the furniture has not moved, it's just that the light is on now, referring to the illumination of Christ. Just one more time, the furniture has not moved. In other words, Christ hasn't moved, he's always been there in the Old Testament, Paul didn't go and place him there. He's been there, but now the light's on so we can see him. And I want us to keep this in mind for these sermons on wisdom because all, every verse on wisdom, every proverb looks to Christ because 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ became to us wisdom from God. To pursue wisdom is to pursue Christ. To reject Christ is to pursue foolishness. The book of Proverbs, it's written... You don't, have to, you don't have to study it too indefinitely to recognize this, as a father speaking to his son. And the father regularly says, a wise son makes a glad father. Who is that son primarily that makes the father glad? It's Christ. Matthew 3, 17, it is baptism, a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, or who makes me glad. I mean, who's the real son that pleases the Father? It's not any of us. It's, it's Jesus. And since Jesus is the source of all wisdom, all the Proverbs point to him. Now, here's why I mention all that. You know, what, what's the application of verse 33? Everything that verse 33 offers is only found in Christ. All the wonderful blessings contained in that one verse are found in 
and through Christ himself. The promise of security, the promise of ease, and even when it promises ease, that's not, that's not what it sounds like. I hate to tell you that, but some of God's greatest, most faithful people do not experience lives of ease. This is not self-help here. This is not prosperity teaching. Just because you follow and pursue Christ doesn't mean you get a life of ease. It's referring to peace. It's referring to spiritual rest that can be known. When it says no fear of disaster, that finds its fulfillment in Christ. This is, the, this is how and only how we can have these things because they're provided through Jesus. To be, if you want real security in this life, it isn't found in your bank account. It's not found in our military. It's not something that the government can offer you. It's not something you can get in, in, in a news story. True security in this life comes from Christ being in him, knowing him, being secure in his hand. That's real security. When it talks about ease or peace or rest, that comes from Christ. To know Christ is to know the peace that he offers. First, Romans 5, to repent is to be at peace with the Father, and then you find yourself in Philippians 4, and to have the peace that surpasses understanding from Jesus as he guards our hearts and minds through him. To be in Christ, how can you no longer fear or dread disaster? There's only one way to not fear disaster or judgment, and that's to have your sins paid for on the cross. Because otherwise, you spend the rest of your life with the guilt and shame and anxiety associated with having to stand before a perfectly holy and just God. Why do I have peace? Why am I confident in my salvation? Because of what Jesus has done for me, not because of anything I've done. If I I had to be confident in myself, I couldn't be confident. I'm confident because I know my sins have been paid for. They're not left lingering out there. I don't have to work them off. There's no favor that I must earn from God. Instead, I know what Jesus did on the cross, and I know that sacrifice was such that the punishment that my sins deserve has have been paid. And so because of that, I don't dread, I don't fear disaster or punishment. Wisdom delivers us, but Christ is the wisdom of God. The true deliverance is found in him. Father, we thank you for that reality. As all of these verses prefigured and foreshadowed your son and him coming from heaven to, the, heaven to earth. So I pray, Lord, that as we pursue wisdom, that we pursue Christ, not just from this sermon, but in any of the sermons that we hear, that that pursuit is really a pursuit of Jesus, to love him more and to know him more. And so I thank you for this time. Be with each person as we go about our week, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you through Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. We pray these things in his name. Amen.